Hey, I'm Daniel Coburn. And I'm John Rudolph Drexler. This is Talking Business League. Uh, we run a small development agency together. Every week, we have a one-hour call where we discuss the state of our business. This is that call. John, how we doing? Good, Daniel. We recorded yesterday, and we're recording again today. It's it's a shock, but it's lovely. Yeah. Um, why are we recording again today, John? We have a special bonus episode with a very <laughs> special person. <laughs> um, so uh, on the call with us is Allison Lacker, who I used to work with. Um, hello, Allison. Hello. It's good to be here. Great to have you here. Um, so I, I prepped this a little bit yesterday uh, on our last episode, but uh, Allison was CTO at Binti, my previous job, and I worked really closely with her on a lot of different stuff. And Allison has a unique perspective, uh, partly because she spent a lot of time as like an individual contributor, also a lot of time in management and being an executive, and then uh, also like flexed as a PM at various points. And like, I have had just from working together, I've had like hours and hours and hours of like interesting conversations about like PM work and how PMs work with uh, engineers and how engineers can benefit from thinking like PMs. And so I was with, with Allison. And so I was texting with her the other day about this and I was like, you know, we <laughs> we like to, so the, the background of this is that Daniel and I uh, wanted to have like, initially we were like, we should get a mentor uh, to like help us with, you know, thinking through different things. And what we eventually realized was it's actually, actually smarter to have like a panel of mentors of like people who know specific things that are very smart in specific areas. And so I was like, wait a minute, we should impanel Allison. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome so, to your impaneling. You've been impaneled. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that you I really be impaneled. Okay, good. We, we didn't really ask for, uh, your agreement to be <laughs> impaneled before this, but here we are. Uh, so thanks for agreeing. And, um, so I, I don't know. I, I wanted to like pick your brain about a few things. I'm sure Daniel will also have questions, but like, I was like, we were halfway through that conversation and I was like, you know what? We should just record this. Like when I was texting you and I was like, I feel like, um, I feel like that would be a more interesting approach. Um, so welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, Thanks. It's good to be here. And also saving my uh, typing fingers. And I'm, I'm grateful to Apple iMessage because I could use my keyboard. We had some long, long threads going there. We did. We did. It's also funny because somebody once described you at Benti as having a podcast voice. Uh, <laughs> and so that was like a running bit for a while. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm, this is my first podcast that I'm on. So I'm, I'm looking perfect. forward to actually being able to flex the podcast voice a little. We'll see. Here's Starting with really small potatoes, this is a this is a, a podcast of no import. So um, this is great. Uh, so I, I think like uh, part of what I was interested in. So like I started texting you initially about this concept, the kind of the basic like premise of like I think developers can benefit greatly from thinking and acting like a PM. Um, and like having some sort of product ownership and like, uh, asking hard questions, doing rigorous thinking about like what problems they're solving. And I think like you agree with that basic like hypothesis. 
But I'm interested to hear, I just make sort of like an open-ended question, like what that means to you or like as someone who has worked on all, you've like seen it from all the different angles. Um, and so I'm curious to know, like, I don't know if, if you were like, if, if, if I was sort of like a junior programmer who had did, didn't really know like what was going on with product management or like what they did or whatever, like, and you were making that argument to me of like, oh, well, here's how you might benefit from a, you know, thinking like a product manager. Like, what does that mean to you? What does that look like to you? I'm just, maybe we start like kind of open-ended and go from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And part of it too, even in your intro, I think it's obvious that I do very badly at staying in a box. So (laughs) it's potentially uh, foreshadowing to say that I absolutely think that engineers should be thinking like product managers and that product managers should also be thinking like engineers. Mm -hmm. Um, Each role has its own specialty, its own specialization. You don't have to be an expert in both, but I think there is a lot of overlap and a lot of benefit that everyone gets from kind of learning what's around them. I think also if I was speaking specifically to an engineer about it, a lot of the things that product managers are thinking about day in and day out is things like, what does our customer want? How are they going to use this product? And also what are different edge cases? And engineers need to be thinking about those things too. Especially the edge case part, I think is the most obvious. Like what would happen if somebody refreshes this page 50 times Mm -hmm. is maybe an engineering thought, but then the answer is a product one. Mm. So you both have to be thinking along those same lines. And then there's also the, what does a customer want out of this? The product manager is probably a little closer to the the customer. Um, They've probably been having more user interviews, but ideally an engineer can shadow, can sit in too. And if you're not thinking about that, you're probably gonna go down an entirely wrong direction. And that's just not motivating for anyone. Um, maybe technically in your job description as an engineer, you don't have to be thinking about this, but Mm -hmm. it's going to be really frustrating if you have to entirely recode or redo whatever it is. And just speaking personally, I find it a lot more exciting and engaging to be building a product that people will like and use. And so if I know a little bit more about what that is, it is going to make me a lot more effective. Yeah. And it's so interesting because like, I mean, part of this is that I've been around, like, I feel like I've, uh, I've, I've been around pretty like good natured programmers. So like, this has been part of it. But what's interesting to me is that like, I've never met a programmer who's like resistant to that part of it of like, you know, when I've invited, when I've invited people to come, like, Hey, come do this, uh, customer interview with me or like, come think through like the detailed user story and like, think through how this is actually going to get used everyone who I've like thrown that to, they've been like, Oh yeah, absolutely. I would love to understand that better. Um, and so it's like not a resistance from there. It's just, there's some, there's some natural disconnect that happens. Like if you're not intentional about it, I don't know. I think from like a, from like a average dev perspective, product feels indistinguishable from management. Right. So I think like an average dev sees product as a layer of management um more than and so they see sort of whatever scrum rituals or 
you know, any of these sort of things that are sort of like part of the part of the sort of rhythm and like owned by the product team, but feel more like uh, accountability measures than uh, than actual like pers- to a dev at least feel often like accountability measures instead of like pursuit of truth or pursuit of like achieving our common goal. Um, and so I wonder if like, I think devs are super open to like, oh yeah, I want to go find out whether this is good or bad. I want to go talk to a user and find out whether this feature is necessary or conceived of well or whatever. And so I think that part of product is actually super like appealing to devs. It's the, but I think that most devs, when they enter the first time they enter like a software team, their product manager is just the person who's like, Hey, did you get anything done this week? And they're like, ah, you know, I think my potential call out on that is that can depend a lot on the company. Sure. Like sometimes the product manager is responsible for the scrum rituals and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the eng manager or somebody else. Um, But I would uh, agree. I think most engineers do want to know and hear from the customer with the potential caveat that a lot of engineers don't want to be the ones actually talking or running the meeting. (laughs) Yeah. So they will usually take advantage of the product manager to help there. Yeah. Leading those meetings is a real uh, skill. And like that was that there's parts of, I mean, I guess this is true with like any job. There's parts of the job that were hard for me and there's parts of the job that are easy. And like that particular part of it, of just like sitting down with somebody for an hour and trying to just like ask the right questions until you understand their problem deeply. That was like the part that I was like naturally very comfortable doing. Um, But it's a weird thing because like I always want to recommend it to other people. I'm like, oh, just do it. Just go talk to people. I'm like, well, this is it's it's hard to talk about because it's like it is it's not comfortable or natural for everyone, and it just sort of happens to be like the thing that I I feel very comfortable with. So I've I've been trying to think through like how to how if you were if you had like a small team who didn't have as many you know I had like three developers and no PM. I'm I'm, I'm trying to think through like how you would even recommend to them like go talk to customers and ask them like really compelling questions until you understand their problem deeply, especially if it's like not of interest or not like a natural thing that they would want to go do. I don't know. That's a hard one. Yeah. I think my suggestion there would be to look at your company. Like what are your current avenues for talking to customers? And there's probably something like you probably have customer support or customer success and the developer can even shadow that. And I know we skipped over it, but there was a time that I was on customer support at Binti as well. Really? And yeah. I don't uh, think I was there at that time. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, I was head of operations for a while, so partially ran Whoa. the customer support team. That's awesome. And it was always really, really interesting listening to customers either contacting us about what they couldn't figure out or what they um, were struggling with. And that's a different learning in many ways than like the new feature development, Mm -hmm. but also gets you really close to the customer and learning what they're doing, how they're struggling or how they're trying to use things. Um, And so that's, that's one option. I think another thing that you are glossing over as like, I, John, I'm just very good at this, but asking the questions is a skill set too. how to like not 
be leading or not be like, oh, I think that you're going to do it this way, aren't you? (laughs) Having them be like, oh, yeah, probably. Or having them even say, hey, like, I really want this feature. You can Mm -hmm. accept that at face value, but it's likely not the full picture. Totally. So how do you ask the follow-up questions? How do you really dive in? Yeah. Yeah. You pushed a lot on that. And I I remember like uh, the whole, I mean, that was a, we were, I think we're good at that at Benti. There was like a culture of like pressing down on those things. And um, I, I, I feel like I have so many different examples of that, but like ever, it feels like that's a really, really common problem everywhere is that like a, a, type of request that you tend to get is just sort of like, I wish you would put a button right here, you know, or like, uh, we need a new report that does X, Y, Z. Um, and you're like, okay, hold on. Let's like abstract that into, you know, um, I just had one at one of the clients we're consulting with where somebody said, um, we really, we really serious. This is a perfect example, actually. So I said, uh, we really need uh, like our customer admins, like the admin of their team to be able to masquerade as all of their users who are not admins uh, or impersonate them or whatever word you want to use there. But it's like, okay, like what specifically do they need to see? And they're like, well, they just need to, they just need to like, you know, impersonate them the way that I can impersonate them. It's like, Okay. To, in order to see what, you know, to what sort of like tease yeah. it what it turned out was like, they just need to be able to like, see like three pieces of specific data. It's like, okay. So they ask for like a potentially pretty complex, like permission Z kind of feature. And you're like, mm, I think they need like a table. <laughs> 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 but that's, you know, you don't get that unless you can kind of like patiently tease out um, and the, the kind of the like uh, i don't know it's 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 and that requires patience and it requires some like careful conversation so yeah i like that idea of having um having customer facing people whether it's customer support customer success sales whoever like going in with somebody who already has the relationship with them uh to like do that call together that's that's an interesting idea if you don't have a pm yeah and I think it's also acknowledging and thinking through how do you have these conversations? And your example right now is a perfect one, because if you can tease out what you actually need, that can be the difference between a day of development and a year of development. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think another thing that also came to mind when you were telling that story is another example that we had at Vinti, where the customer really wanted us to create a form. They're like, our process right now is to fill in this form and it's an integral part and we can't use this if we don't have it. And really digging in, it was an artifact of their previous way of doing things. And Mm -hmm. in the new world, they just didn't need this anymore. Mm -hmm. And we could talk them out of an entire step that they didn't need to do, which is just better for everyone and zero development work. So you can have something that takes less time, is better for everyone, but you might have to dig in and convince and really understand the problem to get there. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, those were the best meetings. It's like, like, cause it's, when you come out of that and you're like, I just removed something for the roadmap, but also like we essentially consulted with the client to like improve their process too. Um, 
that were like, you don't, you don't even need the thing that you were asking for. That's the best. Um, yeah, I think that that's, uh, I think that's really good. And I, I think like the, the other part of it, that's interesting with like scoping down it, like, it feels like a lot of what I keep on coming back to in my like overall hypothesis is like solve problems that matter, like understand what problem you're solving and solve only problems that matter. Um, and then part of that is like, do what is necessary to solve the problem and then stop. Um, and don't do anything that is like, don't solve non-problems. Don't attempt to solve problems you can't solve. Don't like solve the problem and then do 50% extra. It's like, that's how you can end up wasting years uh, yeah. of like good development time. We, and- we just had a call with a client literally right before this podcast. Uh, and it was, they messaged, they emailed us last night and we're like, yo, can you hop on this surprise call? And we're both John and I were like, Oh no, like, what is this? Um, are we fired? What's going on? Yeah. Um, and it was basically like, you know, what's the state of the project? Like, is it good that I'm spending all this money? Like, whatever. Um, it, it was, you know, they just wanted to, I think, be reassured that we took their time and money seriously and that we were taking them to the promised land, um, which I think is a valid thing to check hey. in on every couple months. Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, it was a good call, but, you know, we were kind of like asked at the end, like, are there any things that you're not saying that like you want to say? Right. Which is and, such a good question to ask. <laughs> oh man. I started thinking, <laughs> I started really like, Ooh, let me think, let me think. Um, but the thing I ended up saying was like, look, we need to be so, so ruthless with the scope cutting on this project. Like this, we have a tendency specifically this team, specifically this project to just like, chase shiny things till death right and like this is just one of those projects where it's like if we are not just so extremely ruthless with saying is this the absolute bare minimum implementation of this feature like we will build for 24 months before we launch this you know and it's just like it's not viable for us to do anything we only want to do right now like what we want is like so irrelevant to like whether we're going to successfully launch this before we run out of money you know like um so i'm like i'm so on board with that and i think that like you i think the process the product process for justifying improvements is really interesting to me too right Mm -hmm. where it's like once you've implemented like that absolute bare minimum MVP spec version of a feature or of a requirement or whatever, like there are all of these, you know, you've got like a gang of engineers hanging out, just saying like, Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if this, wouldn't it be cool if that, you know, some designer like mocked up a cool interaction. Like we've got all this stuff, right. That we could do to this feature that we've built the absolute bare minimum of, um, So then there's this question of like, well, how do I know when and how much and if like I want to invest in that, right? Like those, those questions of like, what, what part of the enhancement of the bare minimum feature I've implemented is worth doing and like how much of that, like 
there's you could go to a customer and ask open-ended questions until you find one who justifies the thing that you want to do. Um, <laughs> you can uh, you can go to a customer and show them all of your cool ideas and be like, any of these anything any of these do anything for you, you know, um, and get the answer you want. Um, and I, like, how do you? How much does like how much editorializing do you feel like is appropriate in that in that question? You know, in that moment like editorializing from like within the team? I think some of my reactions to this are, firstly, I internally winced when you said, show all the shiny things to a customer. Oh yeah, um, totally. See what they, they I, think react that, I think to. that's appropriate, yeah. <laughs> um, that's what the salespeople think... are for. They'll do it for you. <laughs> or, or they'll show some things that you had no plans of building. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a sales guy mocked up this feature in Figma and showed it to the customer. <laughs> Um, but that's definitely a way to get some reactions if you want people to be excited about things and yeah. you want to do something. Um, I think that one thing you can do is just wait. You've built the MVP, sit on it, see what people react to. Because I think a lot of the initial ideas um, might fall out as useful later or might just never come up again. And... The other thing is to kind of take notes of ideas too. Um, I think it's really easy to forget some of the excitement and forget some of the things. Um, and then also, this might be controversial or not, I don't know. But sometimes I think it's worth doing something because you're excited about it. Mm-hmm. If there's something that you are really excited and you think would be really cool, and maybe no customer's asking for it, I think it's okay to sometimes take those those risks, those chances and build them just keep an eye on how much time you're spending on these and also think through um, what's the downside. Like, is this thing that you're building going to require a ton of maintenance or be impossible to remove? Or it's really going to take a year and you can't do anything if, if it isn't built. And budget some of your time for these risky, exciting things, but making sure that it doesn't sink you. Mm-hmm. It's really actually very funny that you mentioned that because um the most successful feature i ever launched was the sms thing at benti and that was something early on when i first came on um and you had been the pm can you say what the sms thing was it was essentially just that you don't know uh, daniel yeah come on dude (laughs) for the Uh, user and the listener yeah exactly (laughs) i I, won't go into like excruciating detail but basically it was a it was a situation where the uh, the user uh, needed to reach out to like some, it could be just one person or it could be some large number of people with a message to basically say like, are you available right now? Um, and we did that using a stock email that was not uh, editable. It was a very like, it was an MVP feature. It was like reach out to them with a stock email. And it was basically like, it'd be great if you could customize this message and it'd be great if you could send it via SMS. Um, and Allison pointed out, like when I when I first joined, Allison kind of went through like here's a bunch of the like feature ideas that are documented, many of which are like requested by people. And I remember you even said about you're like, if you could customize this message and send it via SMS, you're like, no one has like, I don't think people had like been specifically asking for it, but you were just like, it feels like it would be really good to do this. Like it just it feels like it wouldn't be too hard, and it feels like a good idea. I don't know if you remember it that way. 
Um, um, I definitely know there was a combination of requests. I was probably on the opposite side where I'm like, people really want this to be customizable and I am terrified about people accidentally leaking private <laughs> yeah. data. Yeah. Um, and that was my security hat on too. Yeah. yeah. But we, we ended up like building it and it ended up not being that huge. And immediately like the numbers, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like that it was like by far the most like used thing that we ever did. Cause it was just sort of like, and, intuitively it makes sense people are like more accessible from their phones than from email a lot of the time and these situations are very urgent and quick and like it was it was not a big project it was basically like one engineer built it and um it was but it was like people loved it and it was like so anyway that was it was an interesting example because it was like that was something that you were just like people are not like this is not a contract requirement for any of our clients but like clearly it would be smart to do SMS. And then we just like figured out how to do it kind of quick and dirty. And it was like the most successful thing I ever did as a PM, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but it's, it, it's an interesting thing because it's like, I do think that there's something there that's like, I believe so wholeheartedly and like talk to customers, understand them, write down their requirements. Um, but there is a, there's another part of this, which is like, having a point of view, you know, and having, mm-hmm. having an opinion and being like, we talked about that a lot at Benti too. It was like, there are things that we just think are the right thing to do. That was yeah. an interesting case too. Cause it's like a very mission driven company. I think um, authorship is like a very useful, like I think not just allowing your users to design your software. Right. But, but take authoring software to some extent is really interesting. Uh, I just was at Laracon Australia recently um, and one of the talks uh, from this woman named Patma, uh, she talked about, so she works at a uh, animal adoption place in uh, Australia. And her talk was on design with friction, basically, and using like design friction to, mod- to modify user behavior, basically. Hmm. Um, and so some of the easy examples of friction or like, you know, if you try and delete a GitHub repo, like they make you type out the name of the repo before you can do it, right? Because it's a problem and you shouldn't want to do it. So one of the things she talked about was uh, at this animal adoption site, right? You can go on and like look at all the available animals um, and they just don't let you filter by breed. Um, They just don't have a filter for it and they ran numbers on it and they were like, yeah, if you let people filter by breed, global adoption numbers go down because people will just filter for the breeds that they want and they won't see the dogs that they otherwise oh, would have or cats or whatever that they otherwise would have adopted because they filtered them out of their search right and so if instead you just let people filter and this is a very like product manager question of like well what problem are you trying to solve right <laughs> well like what problem are you trying to solve with this dog do you want big do you want good with kids do you want like whatever um well, let's ask those questions about the specific animal, not about the breed, because there's a lot of like made up pseudoscience bullshit about like what what breeds are how, right? And so it was really interesting. And they were like, it is by far our most requested feature. Daily, we get 50 emails from people saying, why don't you let me filter by breed on this website? Yeah. I just want, you know, an old English sheepdog. Um, and so like the... But it's very interesting. They were like, we just decided as a business or as a, I don't know if they're a nonprofit or what, but we just decided as an organization 
like fuck those people we're not doing it uh and we're just we're just gonna like let let our sort of authorship of this feature we're going to introduce the friction we're not going to let them achieve the goal they're trying to achieve and numerically that is going to result in better outcomes which is a really interesting approach so i don't know that was just such a great anecdote like i'd never heard someone come with like such a strong anecdote for like just ignore user feedback before <laughs> uh which i thought was so interesting um yeah. so anyway that i just i just loved that i thought it was such an interesting thing and it it definitely like jives with my tendency to want to say like authorship is good right now obviously like i understand that you know you have to talk to your users and you have to like listen to them and you have to figure out what problems they're trying to solve but i do think that like uh taste and authorship and uh opinion are val valuable things in building software so i don't know i don't know exactly know where they fit that that balance is hard to strike I think that's also a really great example because, I mean, one is just really clear, but, um, sorry, I had a point I was going and then I just totally forgot what I was going to say. Um, oh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea that you have your customer who in this case is like the people who want to adopt animals. And then you have a goal, which is to get animals adopted. Mm -hmm. And there is some overlap between these two things. And they're also different. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, mm -hmm. I think acknowledging that they're different and acknowledging what you're trying to do. And mm. this is one area that John and I have talked metrics a lot in our uh, <laughs> yeah. time together too. But it is very clearly like if you are going by, let's say, NPS of the customer adopting, like and that's your primary metric, you're going to try and make it so that um, these people are happy. Maybe you'll do those things. Maybe this Sorry, metric what, will go what up. What is that acronym? Oh, uh, net promoter score. It's like how happy oh, are net promoter score. Yeah, the, yeah, the customers and people who want to adopt. But if your primary metric here is going to be number of dogs getting adopted, then not doing what they want is going to be a lot easier to justify and look at. Um, and then you often in the business world have an additional thing of who's paying the bills, where maybe you have a goal that is aligned with it, or maybe it's in direct conflict with who's paying the bills, or maybe it's like this example where you have your adopters and your dogs, and there is overlap, but not 100% aligned. So even just looking at things from multiple lenses there too. Yeah, I love the... Um... It's interesting because like what you're getting at there was like with the goals, like we spent so much time at Benti talking about goals. And I, I think that that's so critical that it's like, it's this um, defining those goals and getting alignment on those goals is so, so critical to having any kind of coherent process. Like all the rest of this stuff is downstream of that, I think, um, because you could, without goals as sort of a, framework for thinking about that trade-off like you could bicker about <laughs> implementing a feature uh, a little filter there and you could even bicker about the implementation of that feature forever um but if you have a more clear thing which is like well no we care more about adoption of dogs than we care about how happy our users are then it's like 
that it becomes much clearer. Like making a roadmap becomes this like coherent thing that you can argue about how well your roadmap aligns with the goals. That's a good discussion to have. But once the goals are kind of fixed, everything else kind of trickles downstream of that, which I think is a, a very helpful way of thinking about a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah. What are we doing here? And then also to uh, argue against my own point too, uh, <laughs> to make sure you understand the the downsides of different goals. Even this example of um, adopting dogs versus making the adopters happy. If you go all in on getting dogs adopted and you're not thinking long-term, mm-hmm. maybe some people have breed restrictions and they mm-hmm. can't adopt a German shepherd or whatever because of where they live. And if they don't know what breed it is, maybe that dog gets returned. Mm-hmm. And are you taking that into account or are you just like, great, they're like out the door. I'm not thinking about it anymore. Right. And you, yeah. So then you have to think about like, what are your sort of downstream effects and like measure your, your metrics need to be good enough to factor that in, I guess. Right. Or you even just need to talk about it. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Because <laughs> I think as John knows, I can argue metrics to, to the nth degree too. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, one thing, it's this is so much less meaningful than dog adoption, but a term that I picked up that I really loved came from actually a game development conference talk, which was from uh, the team who made uh, the game Rainbow Six that they were like, they were like, we have endless data. We have really good data on what's going on but we are not data driven. We're data informed. And like, we, you know, we have good data that says that like certain, you know, operators you can play with are objectively better than others, but like, that's okay. That's the game we're making. We have good data that like explains it, but like our goal here is not like, we are not automatons who just like react to any spike in data to go like, you know, make a, make a change. We're aware of data. We look at data to answer specific questions, but like we are human beings making intelligent decisions. And we have a point of view here, which I, I like that a lot. It's like, I don't like data driven. I like data informed. I think also humans in general are story driven. So they want the story behind the data. And if you're trying to be compelling, if the data aligns with the story in somebody's head, they'll be like, great, I want to go with it. If it doesn't, it likely won't be compelling on its own. So you kind of need to tie them together anyways. But one of my favorite metric stories that has just stuck with me was I went to a conference talk a long time ago. And it was about how Google at the time had some performance challenges and they just really, really wanted to um, get their time to load to be much, much faster. And they did this huge push Like, okay, our performance isn't great. We want to make it a lot better. And they spent X number of months, X number of dollars, X number of people getting it down. They're like, great, we've made all these improvements. And then looking at the data, suddenly time to load was way worse. They're like, what happened here? Like, in objectively, it failed. The numbers went the opposite direction they wanted. But after digging into it more, they figured out that what they'd really done is improved it enough that people with worse latency could now use it, could now log in. <laughs> Interesting. And so it's like entire swaths of countries or like people that had much worse internet could suddenly use the product. Hmm. And 
looking at just this one number, it failed. But looking at another number, which is number of users, it was wildly successful. Interesting. That's really interesting. Metrics are very tricky. <laughs> I feel like uh, I like I wrote a post about this, which like I don't know if I'll stand with it forever. I've like because I because they're so tricky. I'm especially for like smaller teams. I'm like I feel like my recommendation is like measure like five things that really really matter, and then like stop. Uh, just because like it's so easy to be deceived by the numbers are not deceived. It's so easy to thinking rigorously about statistics is like famously hard for humans to do. And so like, I, I feel like it's really easy to become like delusional about the numbers that you're looking at. And um, if you are not good at it, or if your team is not very big, I'm like, you should like know how many users you have. You should know like, what features are being used and what features aren't being used. But like, you should know whether you're tracking towards your goals. Like beyond that, I feel very skeptical about the role of metrics and like having like huge complex dashboards. And I don't know. So so I'm a poker player, right? And uh, (laughs) there are everyone who plays poker to any sort of serious degree uh, likes statistics right um and to some extent like is uh constantly thinking about statistics and probabilities and stuff of that nature and calculating expected value of certain actions and stuff um and yet there are a huge number of losing poker players who are obsessed with statistics to justify how like it shouldn't have gone that way. Oh, well, according to the numbers, like I should have done this, I sh- or I should have, the outcome should have been this more than it is. I'm just extremely unlucky, right? And so I do think that there's like, there's an extent to which like, just to sort of contrast between like story driven and data driven. Like, I think that people are like extremely narrative driven to the extent that they will like hijack metrics to back the story that they want to have been true. Um, so often that like, I think, unless you have someone who's extremely dedicated to like interpreting data as accurately as possible, like you will almost always like feed your data into whatever story engine you're currently driving. Right. And that I've just seen it so many times where like data ends up getting weaponized or, uh, or abused in places where it's like, it's not really what the data is saying. But like you have definitely co-opted it to do the thing that is most valuable to you in this sort of situation, right? So I think within organizations, it can often get weird with data where like, you know, there's this old thing that like once a, once a metric becomes a goal, it ceases to be a useful metric, right? And like, I think that I've, I've just, I've so rarely seen metrics not become goals, you know, like I've very rarely seen a metric that like that just remained an, an informational metric. It very quickly became like a, all right, well you need to get this to 35 and you need to get this down to 14 and you need to get this up to 85. And like those numbers all of a sudden, like everyone's robbing Peter to pay Paul to get the, their specific number to the right number. Right. Um, so I don't know. 
that's my skepticism of of sort of metrics in general is that like I think that people will as soon as they figure out what metric they're trying to game, they will game it, you know. I think I agree with all of that and it's funny as somebody who absolutely loves metrics and I think I made a dashboard almost instantly for every team I've ever been on. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I also should caveat, I really appreciate it. <laughs> you built for my team. <laughs> um, I think the other call out is I try wherever possible to have conflicting metrics. So like in engineering, how fast you ship versus uptime. Yeah, and- that's, a, that's great. I love that. Because, you know, the thinking through the gamification or if you want to have as much uptime as possible, you're just not going to change anything. Just make everything really robust. As soon as it works, great. Don't make any changes. Um, but then if you have another one, that's okay. How quickly are you getting new stuff out there? Things are going to break when you try to move really quickly. And so making that balance, making it so that hopefully when you, tr- if you tried to game one, whether intentionally or not, and I think a lot of times there's this cynicism or skepticism of like people will try to game it. And yeah, some people will intentionally and some people will accidentally just because that's what you're saying you value when you put that forward as a metric. But it's complicated. I still love them. Yeah. And all these things are true. No, I, I agree. Um, there's a lot of our clients and honestly, like a lot of like the Laravel world in general tends to be like bootstrapped businesses like there aren't nearly as many sort of like VC funded businesses with like high burn down that are like Laravel based. I think Laravel tends to be very attractive to like solo founders or small teams. Right. And uh, so we just end up on a lot of bootstrapped business projects. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that like there the role of metrics is probably a lot stronger in businesses where uh, you're able to deploy more at a problem, right? Where it's like, hey, we actually need to decide where to put a hundred devs, right? Um, <laughs> Not like, a problem I've ever faced, but right. I believe that that but problem I've, exists somewhere. <laughs> yeah, when you need to decide like where to put the energy of a hundred people, like that's a really metrics type of question no no one is going to editorially just kind of like sit and reckon the right answer to that question without a little bit of data right whereas i i do think that like in smaller businesses like bootstraps bootstrap businesses are so interesting because it's like well if you succeeded if you have a business that's now profitable like and you you have some really good intuition about the space that you operate in right like if your business is somehow making money, like you, you have some intuition about the space that you're operating in. And, uh, I tend to really like those people, right? Because they, they, I like to ask them how they got to where they are, how they made the decisions they made that got them to the place that they are now, where they have a successful enough business that they need our help. Right. Um, and so then, there's this next step of like often when people are coming to us, they're right at an inflection point where like the processes that got them, you know, to their first million dollars a year is not going to get them to the next place, right? Where they have to grow, they have to scale, they have to start doing things differently than they did them to get to where they are. Um, 
and selling that can sometimes be difficult, right? And like to do to be of the most service to our clients often I think means like hey, what if we come in and tell you that you have to change a lot of things, you know? Um which is sometimes a difficult conversation. Um and we often it feels like are simultaneously like the bearers of bad news uh and the people who like have to sell you on the beautiful future that you could step into, right? Um, which, you know, wor- works as a sales strategy, right? The like hurt and rescue sales strategy of just like, yeah, tell you everything's fucked and that we can solve it. Um, but uh, I do think that like often we enter into situations where people are like, oh yeah, we have just been intuiting our way along this whole time and we've gotten like a successful working business and now we're in the middle of like our old software didn't work so now we're like rebuilding the whole system or whatever and you know we're we're in the middle of like a big thing and we realized it was too big for us and so then we called you and so now you're here to help us like what do we do and often the answer is like well the thing that got you here isn't going to get you any further like we have to we have to start like implementing a little bit of rigor you know Mm -hmm. um so yeah i don't know have you been in companies in the moment where the rigor had to be implemented? <laughs> Boy, has she. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I've been through two startups growing in different phases. Um, mm-hmm. Bintia is there from three to, I don't know, 150 employees mm-hmm. or so. Um, and then I was, previously at a, a different one that was kind of the a hundred to a couple thousand people phases. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that the, that point where you need rigor is different at different companies and different on different teams. Um, and it's needed in different areas too. One of the things that actually first came to mind though, when you were talking was thinking about old technical decisions. So Mm. at Binti, when I joined, there was kind of a a prototype and MVP that was pretty functional about some things and had kind of just been built in a couple days, happily to see like, you know, what can we do? Is it going to solve the problem? And over time you build on that because it works and why not? Um, And because you still haven't gotten 100% proof that what you're doing is the correct thing. And over time, these decisions grow, they change, and maybe the entire problem set that you're solving is different at a certain point. And one of the biggest tensions I've noticed actually is new people coming in and saying like, hey, why did you make this decision? Like this thing is just not functional. It's really annoying to use this old technology, or we have to learn this thing that is non-standard that nobody else in the industry uses. Like why was this decision made? And it can become really difficult to maintain that empathy for maybe this was the right choice at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not that the initial engineers were bad engineers. Um, Maybe they randomly chose it because they had 500 choices to make that day. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was still the right choice at that time. And maybe it wasn't, but it got us to this point. Mm -hmm. And as an engineer who like made some of those calls too, 
and be like, hey, like, I think every engineer looks back at their old code and they're like, what jerk made that? And they're like, oh yeah, that was me. Um, but also then defending it against new people and kind of that that tension within yourself too of, hey, maybe it wasn't a terrible call and man, I wish I'd made a different call. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not exactly the same thing that you're talking about, but I think it is similar too. Mm-hmm. And what we try to do about it is just kind of open up that conversation around, hey, like we could have made this different call, but it brought us to this point and maybe now is the right time to make a change. Mm-hmm. But why? Like what were the choices that made it? that went into the decision then, what are some of the different factors now? It might mean that, you know, the scale is different now or the problems that you're solving is different now and being okay with, you know, there was a decision that got us this far and now it's time for a different change. Um, I think also (sighs) it can be with different things. Like maybe you use Gusto as a payment provider um, to your employees up to a certain point and then it just is not built for companies that are bigger than that so you have to make this big change it doesn't mean that it was bad to have done that in the past it just means that it got you to this point and now that you're a bigger company that you're doing different things you need a different one so i think my my takeaways are just approaching it with empathy and saying that it was a necessary choice or it was a a different thing that you were doing before and now it's a different company essentially at a different scale. It's such a great point about the empathy um, to always remember like this actually just came up with the previous client. This came up all the time at Penti, but it came up with the previous client where I was like, we were talking about like how that we're essentially building a new site, a new version of the old site. And I was like, you know, I was saying to Daniel, I was like, man, you know, this team like built the old site that is a product that is profitable that's paying for us all to be here. And it's like, <laughs> we have to keep on reminding ourselves of that. You know, it's like, like we, we may have like different architectural opinions, but it's like, they built the thing that got us here. That's getting us all paid. So it's like, that's, that means something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember it was also really interesting. Like when you and I were working together that there were certain things that I would come to you and be like, why does this thing work like this? And you'd be like, oh, that was like a really specific decision. And that that is a load-bearing wall. Do not remove that (laughs) load-bearing wall, you know? And there was other stuff where you were like, oh, that's because it was an MVP. Like, feel free to hack and slash. It's like, oh, okay, interesting. Like, uh, but it was really interesting to like step into an existing product um, where some things were MVP and some things were like, no, there's a huge amount of thought that went into that. Um, It's like... Uh, really interesting to tease those different things out. And like, yeah, I think it made me more empathetic because like you were there to like ask questions to um, that there wasn't any room to be like, ah, this is bullshit. It's like, no, it's like this is an MVP. I wouldn't have this job unless this MVP was built. And like the person who built it is here, you know? So I was like, yeah, it's, uh, I think that's, that's a really great point. I think it's, oh, go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Uh, I was going to say, I think the only additional thing to add on to that is sometimes you come and be like, hey, like, why was this decision made? And be like, there was this great amount of thought, like, here's the conflicting opinions and the the ideas that went into it. And sometimes that wouldn't matter anymore. Like, maybe right, it right. mattered when they were converting from previous process onto it. Totally. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't look at it again. And yeah. I'm, I was always happy to be like, this is what I was thinking. Yeah. 
but it's still open for totally rethinking. That's where the FG scale comes in. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> um, the uh, I think the first episode of this podcast is called the FG scale. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, uh, I am so yeah. happy. It's yeah. not even my my thought, but I'm happy to yeah. uh, propagate it wherever possible. Yeah. <laughs> it was so great because like there were a lot of things where you're like I. I like this UX way better than this UX. It doesn't really matter. I'm FG2. And then like the first, that the, when we ran up against the data validation problem, uh, mm-hmm. you were like, it was the first time I heard you be like, I have an opinion and it's an FG8. And I was like, whoa, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I am taking that at face value. <laughs> um, I Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to sort of ask an open-ended question because like, I think we, we find ourselves in like these sort of like advisory roles in small tech companies a lot. Right. So like we end up kind of going in and like, you know, either like leading product or like acting as the CTO of a company that doesn't really have a CTO and sort of like making sort of like uh, architectural decisions and resource allocation decisions and all sorts of decisions you know for our clients with our clients but for our clients right um what do we what do you think we need to be thinking about that we might not be thinking about as we go into these sort of consulting engagements this is the real impaneling this is where we get the value out of yeah let's go (laughs) (laughs) um i think it's two questions Mm -hmm. um is your one question with two options is your goal to have this be a super functional thing for a long time or is your goal to fix it in the moment? What do you mean by this when you say have this be? So let's say you're brought in presumably to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, are Is it generally that you're a long-term contract that you're going to be around and bed in the team or is it build this and then go away? Uh, sometimes it's build this and then go away that turns into a long-term thing. Uh, sometimes it's... Uh, small long-term thing where it's like, Hey, we want you in here five hours a week that turns into like, it can go both directions. Right. I tend to prefer like a three month hardcore engagement and then fuck off. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's like my preferred engagement with people. Um, the scope is really clear. It lets us like do do the thing we want to do and then leave. Um, Mm -hmm. and then why don't you live with it for a couple months and then bring us back for the next thing, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I've had a lot of success with those sorts of engagements, but, uh, it, it, we've had both. We have someone mm-hmm. we've been working with for a year plus right now where we're doing all the product and some engineering and stuff like that too. Nice. One of the first things I was thinking of when you were talking about making architectural or technical decisions or product decisions is who has to carry those on after you yeah. and are they going to immediately want to change it? Right. Because so often we've just had this entire conversation about um, going with your gut on product or making things that might be what you think of in the moment, but maybe is not what is data driven or something Mm -hmm. like that. And if whoever comes immediately after you disagrees, it's going to probably fall apart fairly quickly Mm -hmm. or they'll just want to redo it entirely. So... One thing I would think through is who are the stakeholders, not just in like who is paying you, but who's going to need to 
maintain this or keep it going after you. Who's going to need to live with the decisions you're making today, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that might be technical, it might be product, and it might mean like maybe you have a preferred technology or you have a preferred architecture, Mm -hmm. but if they're going to immediately start changing it, maybe go with a middle ground or maybe just do what they want Mm -hmm. in the first place, even if it's not what you love. Right. Yeah. I think sort of that, like it's, it's an interesting conversation to have knowing you won't be there. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, and I think like that's, that's the kind of conversation I'm always having is like, Hey, are you going to be able to live with this when we're gone? Right. Mm -hmm. And so often like I'm advocating things because I think that you'll be able to live with this when I'm gone. Right. Like, and like if we spend some time now um, building a, like a little bit of a framework around this, it will be easier for you to build new features around this in the future when we're not here. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, but yeah, you're right. Like that as a consultant, firm or whatever it's it's easier or it's more important for us to like think in terms of like when we're gone how does this continue to live yeah something else when you are asking questions about when rigor changes in a company and things along those lines something i often wished i had done more earlier was document decisions like why did i choose this technology was it carefully thought out or was it two things seemed roughly equal and I chose at random. Um, Cause then in the future, I think you get a lot more of that empathy built in around, Hey, Allison chose it at random. So I'm not going to hurt any feelings. I'm not going to make a catastrophic mistake by changing it or, Hey, there was all these things that were thought through and those aren't relevant anymore, but Hey, Allison sure thought about those options. What's the process for going back to that documentation of those decisions like how do you like how do you force people to go through that and then before they you know like I can imagine a world where I spend hours writing documentation of why I made certain choices and it never gets read by anyone you know yes absolutely (laughs) it's a fantastic question um something I've been trying to do more of in general is to not spend tons of hours writing documentation but to take notes Mm -hmm. as I look through, like if I need to decide between what technology I'm going to use, I'm probably going to have like 20 tabs open. Mm -hmm. And it's the difference between writing that all down on a different scratch note versus making the decision and moving on. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's been a fairly robust requirement stock, I've definitely like linked back to it. If I'm still around Mm -hmm. like, Hey, like these were the decisions that requires you being around, Mm -hmm. um, which is not going to happen for probably anyone, really. Even if you like you're embedded in the company, you can't guarantee that. Um, I always like wherever possible inserting it into where somebody's going to be looking. Exactly to your point, um, if they're looking in the code, writing a comment, mm-hmm. um, it can be a big comment or like a link to documentation. Um, I've definitely stumbled across other people doing that in the past and appreciated it. Um, but it's it's a great thing to think through. Like, how are you going to put this in somebody's way so that it's not a waste. Hmm. And at the same time, if I'm taking notes on it as I'm already deciding, hopefully it's not a waste anyways. Hopefully it's just part of my process. And 
it was useful to me in the moment because you're right. You don't want to spend a hundred hours and then it never be looked at again. <laughs> right. Reminded me of, uh, we used to sort of doing that at some point on the scoping documents at, for bigger projects, we'd have just a little table of like, it was pretty short. It was like pretty concise to read, but it was like, here's every like big question about this project. Here is the answer. If we have answered it or like highlighted, if we have not yet answered it. And then like, here's who was in the room and what the date was when we decided. Um, and it's a really powerful way of just being like, like check this. Like if you have a question, there's a, good chance it has already been asked and maybe it was actually answered six weeks ago by like Allison and John and two other people, you know? So, and um, this is the type of thing, like I picked this up. So I used to work at an agency called Titan, which is kind of like at the time, especially was kind of like the go-to Laravel dev shop. Right. And uh, I learned a lot from the leaders of Titan. And one of the things I learned was like, CYA notes always, right? Like you never, you never know when you're going to, you know, be called upon to prove that you are earning your, earning your salt or whatever. Right. And so those sorts of notes are extremely valuable just from a, like a cover your ass perspective of like, look, maybe, you know, there's a leadership change over there and someone comes along and says like, you guys aren't living up to your end of this deal. Like we need to be able to prove that we are. And I think that like just accounting for those decisions are key. And, you know, being able to say like, this was our decision. This was your decision. Like in this case, we're operating according to what you told us to do. In this other case, you asked us to make a decision and we did. And so we're going with that. Like those are important because, you know, one day someone will threaten to sue us. (laughs) Like that's just part of the, it's part of the business. Um, And so when that happens, we want to make sure that we're, ready to deal with it. I was recently having a similar conversation with a different group of leaders and and they called out, if it gets to the point that like you need your cover your ass agreement, um, then the relationship is already mm-hmm. fucked, mm-hmm. Um, which I think is accurate. And your call out of lawsuit is probably one of the good examples of doesn't matter if the relationship is messed up or not, yeah. having <laughs> that documentation is is important. Um, but it is, it's useful, I think either way, both for that empathy in the future, like what did we think about in the future or something that I think John and I experienced a fair amount is some of the big projects would have a lot of conversations and maybe you'd have one and be like, okay, we want to go this direction. And then later on, it kind of changes back to a previous thought. And if you don't have all those Yep. like documented, you're going to go through the same conversation again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being like, hey, we thought about these things and this is why we didn't go this way or now are we okay with these things Um, Mm -hmm. was useful. This also gets at, this is a little side note, but um, an interesting thing about like, we just had a client ask us, like we're pretty far ahead on scoping. And uh, he was like, does it seem worth your while to go scope like everything? Like, does it make sense to go scope like a thousand points of work? And I was like, I don't know, like things change so much. And like for that, like final ticket we scope, that's like not going to get worked on for two years. Like how valuable is it to have a perfectly scoped thing that like, we don't know what the world looks like in two years and whoever's working on that two years from now might have no, like have a really hard time getting into my shoes to, to like understand why 
I don't know. I'm like getting that far ahead on scoping. If you don't have to, like, I don't know. It was an interesting, it was just an interesting thing because he wasn't saying like, go do it. He was just like, would that be a good use of time for you to just go scope our entire future? And I, my intuition was like, I don't think so. I think I want to be like two projects ahead. I don't think I want to be five projects ahead. I think that's weird, actually. I don't know. Um, I, don't I know. think I would agree with that. Except that it's useful, I think, to have some of your thoughts written down. Mm-hmm. Like the number of tickets we had in, in the backlog of NT that were something like a sentence that made no sense in the future, but had 50 <laughs> comments from people being like, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. That was never fun. No. Um, and then also, if there's, I think planning ahead projects that are dependent on previous projects, I wouldn't do. Yeah. But if there's anything solo or any small yeah. tickets that could be done interspersed or along the way, those are probably worth scoping out. Yeah. I had one other thing I was going to ask, but I also want to check. I know we're over right now. Do you need to, does anyone need to run? Totally fine if you need to. I don't okay. have something right now, but if you need to go. Okay. All right. I, we'll, we'll keep it, we'll keep it brief. It relates to some of the things that we were just talking about, but one of the things that you did uh, a lot of, like you had to do a lot of at Benti was um, thinking through new processes and like implementing new processes. And um, I, this is something I'm thinking about a lot because I think to a lot of people, to a lot of developers, product sounds like process and um, people are understandably because they've been burned in the past or whatever are like allergic to process. And like, I get that. Um, and so I like one thing that I've been, I'm interested just to hear how you think about like implementing new processes and things like that. That's kind of the general thing, but I'm also like trying on this new hypothesis that I think a lot of product processes and like agile in general exists to basically solve communication problems. Um, And we're working, this is like kind of a special case, but like we have this one client where we're doing, we basically have two full-time people and uh, me and Daniel and uh, one other person are splitting like 64 hours to do this thing. There's extremely high trust um, and everyone like very clearly understands the goals. And like, there's almost no process in place. You know, we're just like crushing it. You know, we're just flying through it and there's just no issues anywhere. And it it keeps on like, it's this nagging question to me that I'm like, does process just exist to like bridge these communication gaps? And like, if everyone was just like communicating well, how much process do you need? I don't know. And like, cause I, I want to be really minimal with process because people are so allergic to it. Um, so I don't know. That was like a lot of thoughts, but like, how does that sit with you? Does that resonate? And like, how do you think about like when to implement process and um, how to keep it lean? Um, I would 100% agree. I think process is there to bridge communication gaps. I also think there is a scale at which just communicating a lot starts to fall apart. Totally. And so that might be, again, at a company when you need to introduce rigor at a certain point. And it might not be because the product manager and the engineers aren't talking. It might be because um, product and sales aren't talking or engineers and customer support aren't talking. And that's when process starts to become useful. Yeah. 
I think the other thing is, again, going back to goals, like just being really clear on why do you want to add the process and getting people aligned to that goal. Because if they don't understand why the process is there, people are going to make up their own reasons for it. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're trying to add a process around making sure every ticket is um, estimated before a sprint starts Mm -hmm. for size. The assumption is probably going to be, great, the product wants me as an engineer to work faster, and they're trying to keep tabs on what I'm doing, and they're trying to make sure that I don't, that I'm only doing what they tell me to do. But if you had previously aligned on, like, hey, we're really bad at hitting our goals, mm-hmm. and we want to understand, like, what is taking longer than expected and where the problem areas are. I think if if you come in as a manager or a product manager and you say that, it's not, it still might not be trusted. It's going to be like, okay, but really, like, you're just trying to get me to move faster. Um, But this is one area that I always really appreciated retros on. Yes. So if you have a conversation instead with product and engineering and say, hey, where are we not doing as well as we expect? And everyone's like, there's all these hidden complexities that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. And you can say, great, like, how can we find some of those? then you can come to a process that maybe is the same process, but gets more alignment behind it. Yeah. I like that. I love that how retros, yeah, you use the word alignment there. Like I love how retros it, since it opens it up to everybody and it's this like group conversation, then it's like, let's as a group, like diagnose a handful of problems. Um, and then center anything new that we introduce, let's like center it around those problems. Um, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's interesting. One of the other things that's interesting to me is like the, similarly to like the whole, like scoping down, like you scope down by asking like, what problem does this ticket solve? I think you scope down processes in the same way where you're like, do a process if it solves a problem. Um, and if like this old meeting that you had does not any longer solve a problem, feel free to eliminate it. I, I, I wrote this up in one of the blogs, but it was like really interesting when I, um, when I started at Benti, the team who I was with and like Rahul specifically, the lead engineer I was working with, like, he was like, here's what I need from you. And like, here's what I, here's how we can work together. And we kind of like gradually developed a process through retros together that like worked really well for us. And then he became a manager. Some things moved around. I got a new lead and like the new lead was like, I hate this. Like, I don't like this process <laughs> at all. I was like, that's fine. We like, and we basically came up with a new one and it was mm-hmm. completely different and highly effective. And it was like really interesting because it was like, uh, by just like talking really frankly about like what's working, what's not working. We like quickly, like, you know, got rid of our old, uh, got rid of our whole old process and like developed a new one from first principles. <laughs> and it was mm-hmm. like, they looked, my weeks looked so different, but both of them yep. were, both of them worked. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely true. I think it's great to do to entirely revisit a process when the people involved change. Um, I think it's also a process can involve more than the people doing it day to day. So if it's the product manager and the engineering lead, let's say, two entirely different processes could work for two different people. But if you need to 
be using it to do quarterly planning that involves um, interacting with other teams. There might be this third party that needs to be considered Mm. that may or may not be immediately. Yeah. And I find that that's often one of the trickier ones. Yeah. Because the people involved doing the majority of it are like, we don't care about that. That's not our day to day. This process is getting instituted on us. But then that's where it comes back again to like, what problem are you trying to solve? Yeah. And just thinking through that part that might not be the the core circle, but like that second circle. Yeah. It's so funny. This is a last little thought on this is that, uh, there was a great conference talk actually recently from Daniel's former employer, the head of Titan, who's like doing what we're doing, but for bigger companies generally. And they've been around for a long time and they're, they're great. And I think they're, they're angling pretty strong to just like do big enterprise contracts because that's like what they're great at. And there's obviously a ton of money there, but he did this conference talk about what is the enterprise and like broke it down from all these different angles. And then eventually he was just like, basically it just means hard. Everything is hard. Deployment is hard. (laughs) Management is hard. Hiring is hard. Teams are hard. Like building like some sort of like harmonious architecture between all these different teams is very hard. Like all of it is hard. (laughs) It's like, that's what the enterprise means. It's like, that sounds right. Like if we started getting into that at Binti, we know like it was not huge, uh, but going from, I don't know, I was there when we went from like 30 to over a hundred people. And it was like, I was like, oh, this is becoming way harder. <laughs> there's like mm-hmm. the thing you just mentioned, like that, like, yeah, there's the PM and the eng lead, but like, what about everyone else? And it's like, yeah, it gets, it's hard. Yeah. I think especially with enterprise as well as you have your company. So you have your engineering team, your product team, your sales team, um, your support team. And then on the enterprise side, they also have their IT team and their sales team and their leadership team and then their boots on the ground. And their teams aren't necessarily talking to each other. So if you're not talking to each other, you have all these crazy silos and assumptions being made and people who are frustrated. And that's where you end up with crazy processes to make sure that everyone's talking to each other, like having a meeting where you just go over action items um, once a week that seems really annoying and everyone hates it and is useful because (laughs) there's this crazy map. In the absence of it, it's like complete mayhem. There was this this wild uh, moment where I I was like embedded at this company that was in the middle of being acquired by a large private equity company. Um, And this company kind of like rolls up a lot of like companies that do sort of like clicks based things. Right. So this, I guess I can say, I don't know if I can say the names of these companies. I don't know. Uh, anyway, regardless, like this was a company probably had like a hundred devs um, and they were getting acquired by a company that, you know, all told had thousands of devs. Right. And so processes were changed. Like this was a long acquisition, but it was basically a done deal. Everyone knew about it. Right. Um, and so th- they were sort of in the integration of like, okay, this team is going to end up getting like moved, you know, like things, people were getting fired, people were getting like super promoted, like all kinds of crazy shit was going on in the middle of this acquisition. And uh, we were just like cranking on tickets, you know, cause like we were just like outside contractors who were just <laughs> working in this company. Um, and it was 
wild to watch the processes get more intense as they were integrated into a larger business, right? Like just the, the extent of the process like multiplied where like I was an external dev who shouldn't have been in any sort of management capacity really in that team. Um, but all of a sudden I was just like, kind of like thrust into like some weird management roles inside of a company I didn't work for. It was like a very, <laughs> it was a very weird situation. Um, but yeah, just, it is interesting how like the more, the larger the organization, like the immediately you saw the process become much more heavy handed, but mm -hmm. in a way that I guess makes sense because like, if this is just one of the 150 teams that you have to manage, yeah. like, what else are you going to do? You yeah, exactly. Like, you don't get to just be like, oh, we're going to bootstrap it and be, and be yeah, chill. Right. Like, you don't, it's not going <laughs> to, it's not going to work. You just spent like $90 million on this company. Like, it's yeah. time, to, yeah. <laughs> time to get your money. Yeah. There um, is a concept I've, I've heard of before that I've seen play out a couple times now, which is the rule of threes and tens. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that as a company scales, all communication, all processes need to change kind of at these intervals. It's like when your company is one person versus three people, all communication structures need to change. Mm. Three to 10, again, entirely different, 10 to 30, 30 to 100, and so on. And it's it's been interesting because it's, you know, a rough back of the napkin sort of math, but has been roughly true from what I've seen. Interesting. Um, so much of our strat, so like this comp, you know, Thunk was basically like my freelance business, right? And then like it sort of scaled to now it's three people basically, mm -hmm. right? And we, well, three plus some contractors and random things, but yeah. you know, call it four people maybe on average. Um, and like, I think basically we've agreed that like we don't want it to be 10 people ever. <laughs> Right. Because like, <laughs> it's like, well, if we could just get really good at like the three to 10 communication style and just mm -hmm. never have to change it, like that's ideal. <laughs> like, yeah, because like, I just don't, I just don't want to deal with the tens, honestly. Like I'm yeah. more than happy to be a three. Um, and I feel like we can be really effective and nimble inside mm -hmm. of large organizations, right? Like we get pulled into a large organization. It's like, yo, Give us a discrete piece of work that no one has time to deal with because they're dealing with other things that were prescribed to them in ways that are unknowable, right? Mm -hmm. Give us a discrete chunk of work. We can like just nail it very quickly mm -hmm. because like we are able to be very process light inside of our small organization and you guys don't have the flexibility to be process light. Um, yep. And so like we can be super nimble and like as long as y'all are okay with like carving out little chunks of work for us like we're able to be someone's secret weapon inside of that organization of like knocking things out in ways that other teams aren't getting things done that quickly right and critically you don't have to i think part of the pitch after now i i didn't i didn't fully appreciate how much this is part of the pitch until like i operated in some tech companies but it's like you don't have to go hire you don't have to make a really good full-time hire to to get us um you and because hiring is so hard um and risky and, and so expensive. like at expensive so it's like bring us on and fire us whenever you want um 
is I think that's actually like a big part of the pitch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And scaling between like product, like tech architecture consulting and like just pure engineering hours is like very useful, right? Because like normally you have to make a decision whether I'm going to hire an individual contributor to like crank tickets or am I going to hire like some, like an engineering manager or a tech lead or someone who's like going to architect out like the technical implementation of something, right? Or am I going to hire a product manager who's going to like scope out and like make product decisions about like what we're actually going to build and like the cool thing with us is that like we can sort of like morph into any of those roles as needs change right so like often like you might need more products up front and then more engineering hours on the back end you know like as like a lot of the product decisions have been made and now you just need to build them um so that's hopefully we, we've done this a couple times and it feels like it's starting to work of like we we end up getting called in for someone who thinks they have a engineering manpower problem and then we help them discover that they have product problems and then <laughs> through those product problems we like discover that there are like some like big architectural planning needs and then mm-hmm. those things lead back to like well we need like pure raw person hours to get this done Um, and like, it's cool that like you get to sign one contract and you don't have to hire three different individual people in full-time six figure roles to get that done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, right. I actually do have a meeting now coming up. Yeah. Um, It's time. It's time to roll. I feel like we've kept the point this longer than we said we were going to. Um, It was um, a fun conversation. Do you want to be found on the internet? And if so, how? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. I do not have a good internet presence right now. Uh, I am not big on media. Great. Fair enough. Cool. You just just, like do work. Yeah. You just, you're just out here achieving things. I see. Um, (laughs) Word. Well, yeah. So if you have any questions for Allison, uh, ask them to us and then uh, we'll ask (laughs) them to Allison. We'll get you back. We'll get you back on another episode to answer all the questions. I love it. All right, cool. Awesome. Anything else, John? No, I think that's it. Thanks so much. We were seriously, seriously awesome to just catch up and hear from you. It was. It's great to hear about what you're doing and uh, keep at it. Woo! Um, if you just mute yourself, or you can leave this on after a minute and it'll finish uploading. Uh, we always talk through the outro music. We always so. talk through the outro music. <laughs> <laughs> The, the uh take the, remove my professional voice and just go back into uh yeah, yeah talking about one of our small bits is that yeah. we, we talk about uploading the files during the outro music yeah. every time it takes a minute for the file to upload so if you just leave this open for a minute after we're done do, do, do. that was fun though i enjoyed that yeah i have so many more questions yeah i, <laughs> I want to not record some of them yeah <laughs>